Now, one of the beauties uh, about teaching through uh, books of the Bible, as we do here, um, is that you come across passages that um, are difficult times to preach through, at times to preach through. So we don't miss the hard sayings of Jesus when we, when we do this. And today is one of those instances where uh, we are going to work through a passage, passage that could be considered a hard teaching. We're going to talk about repentance. Now the very idea and the very notion of repentance does not make one jump for joy. But it should, right? When we think about repentance, when we think about that God has granted us repentance, it should cause us to really jump for joy, to, be, to really thoroughly enjoy what the Lord is doing for us in that. But before we get into the text, I want you to recall a time where you endured a great tragedy or a calamity or some sort of catastrophic event, much as like what happened in this passage. How many of us can remember when and where, the exact time and place we were when planes were flown into the World Trade Centers, the Pentagon in Shanksville, Pennsylvania? If you can think about that. Now, now for me, I was actually living in Columbus at the time. I had just finished uh, Bible college there. And that day was actually supposed to be a really joyful day for me because one of my favorite bands was releasing an album that very day. So I was excited. I was ready to buy that album so I woke up uh, that morning like I normally would do. I took a shower, brushed my teeth, put on my work clothes, and I had a little bit of time. So I decided to sit there and drink some coffee, because that's what all good people do in the morning, right? Is drink coffee so they can wake up. But as I was drinking my coffee, I turned on the TV, as many Americans did that day. All right, we saw this great tragedy unfolding before our very eyes, something that seemed like it should have been out of an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. But I, stood, I, I sat there on, on the couch. My mouth was just gaped wide open and just in awe and amazement of what I was seeing on uh, the TV. And I had all these questions running through my mind. And those, those questions kind of, kind of went like this. Those questions were, were who would do such a thing? Or why would this happen? Or why did God let this happen? What was the motive of the people that flew planes into these buildings? And see, I wanted to know the motive, right? The hows and the whys. Much like all of us, right? This is human nature. As when something bad happens to someone, be it a murder, be it a divorce, or a skinned knee, right? Or or what have you. We, We are always asking ourselves questions. Am I right? See, we want to know the motives, and we try to figure out those motives. And this is why there are so many law and orders on television today, right? So we're all detectives. See, this is no different than the Jewish people. When you look at John's Gospel, chapter 6, it talks about the man who was born blind. The people asked Jesus if his blindness was as a result of his parents' sin or because of a sin that he had committed. And as we know, Jesus answered in the negative, but he said this. He said that it was to show that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the works of God might be displayed in him. You know, sometimes God uses these difficult experiences to cause us to focus on our need for repentance rather than focusing on others, which is what we see here in chapter 13, 1 through 5. See, J.C. Rao had this to say. He said that the state of our own souls should always be of our first concern. 
when we're thinking about repentance and, and thinking about our walk with the Lord. Yes, it's very important to uh, reach out to others and to uh, proclaim the good news to people. But it's also important to, ver- to focus on ourselves and to focus on repentance so that we're, we are not the man with the twig in his eye helping to remove the speck out of our brother's. So, so we have an outward focus on others that we see here, and, and I'll read. So there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Let's skip down to four. Or those, 18, on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So, you know, once again, Jesus is approached uh, with a question from people in this crowd that we've been talking about here, where Jesus had just left the uh, Pharisee's house. He was approached by the crowd that was there that had gathered, and he addressed the crowd. He addressed his disciples. Now the crowd is asking him another question. This was a very interesting question, Right? And, and again, we need some context on this because, you know, to these questions and these scenarios that, that we see here. Because we, when we look at the text, we're trying to figure out why exactly they're bringing up this, this uh, scenario with Pilate and these Galileans. So as he's asked about these Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and there's not many things within commentaries that I've read that had a clear um, idea of what, what this was. Um, or about this incident, uh, but this was the uh, the, the overarching um, continuity between all of them, is that this was the only historical record that was found, and it was in Luke's Gospel. So, to paraphrase one of the commentaries, and this is kind of, I, and I don't know if this is actual historical fact, or if this was maybe speculation, but I really liked what he had to say, and I thought it brought a little bit of context to uh, to where we are. Uh, Philip Riken, he said that a group of Galileans had been offering animal sacrifices. Now, presumably, they had done this at the temple at Jerusalem, and it was probably during the Passover. And while they were engaged in this act of worship, the Galileans were viciously murdered by soldiers under the guidance of Pontius Pilate. Uh, see, the Galileans, they were fiercely independent in those days, and so it's possible that uh, Pilate saw these men as political, as a political threat, as if there was some sort of upheaval. These guys were rabble rousers and were ready to, uh, you know, cause some kind of protest if something was, you know, not going their way. So, in this senseless slaughter, then was be keeping up with the character of of Pilate, of his reputation. In this particular massacre, then the blood of the victims those Galileans had mingled with their sacrifices. And this is all we know. That's all I can tell you. That's all I read. However, though, because of this, we see that those that were there, present with Jesus, they presented Jesus with an opportunity for Jesus to talk about their own souls. They were outwardly focused. And Jesus wanted to turn the table on them. He wanted to be wanted them to be introspective. He wanted them to take a look at their own lives. Now, Jesus poses this question to them, asking them if the Galileans who were murdered, who were victims of this tragedy, if there are any worse sinners than the rest of the Galileans 
because they had suffered in such a manner. He used this question to cause the people to think about their own spiritual condition. To revisit that quote by Ryle again, he said, The state of our own souls should always be of our first concern. But see, Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with their example. He gives them another example. He uses an example to further drive home this point of, of, of stop looking at other people and, and saying, well, they need to repent when you too need to repent as well, or you will perish. He asked them about the 18 that had died as a result of the Tower of Siloam that fell on them. Once again, Luke is the only place where this incident is mentioned. But some have speculated that it is a construction accident. They were building an aqueduct, and part of the tower had fallen and killed uh, the workers. If we want to localize this, we think of Willow Island. Um, If you guys know anything about that or not from the area originally, um, one of the towers had collapsed in on the workers and killing all of the workers that were there um, some time ago. Um, And it's still recorded as one of the worst construction accidents in the United States. So the towers then may have fallen while the workers were building that aqueduct for the famous Pool of Siloam, which we all know and we've seen in in John as well. The fact that Jesus refers to this accident does show that it is common knowledge, that there there was an understanding that this happened. So there, there there is that as well. But see, many people had questions about this tragedy. And as a result of these questions, people concluded that the people who died as a result were at fault. See, this tragedy, this theology, excuse me, of sin and suffering was especially common in the Jewish, uh, in, in ancient Israel. At, in fact, at, at, at the, that time, it was generally accepted notion that whenever calamities visited people, this was a proof that they were exceptionally sinful and that for this reason, God allowed them to be overtaken by such disasters. So, in fact, there are people who think like that today. If you can remember back a few years ago, there was a famous televangelist who, upon hearing or seeing the news about the Haitian earthquake, immediately said something that sparked a lot of controversy. Now, whether it's true or not, we'll never know. But he had said that since Haiti's founders had made a pact with the devil to liberate themselves from the French slave owners, and in, this indirectly attributed to the earthquake and to the consequences of the Haitian people being cursed for doing so. So, again, we, we don't know if this was act of judgment from God. But we do see God in Scripture punishing the sins in these ways. Sodom and Gomorrah is, is, the, is the, the biggest one that we see. Again, we can't say if this is for sure with this case with Haiti or with any of the other tragedies that we've seen recently with earthquakes and hurricanes such as Katrina. But we can be certain that God would ask us this. Do you think that these that were killed were worse than the rest of us? See, we should... that. That would be focusing outwardly if we're looking at other people and not focusing on our repentance. See, when we focus on others, then we miss the point that all of us are in need of repentance, that we are all sinners and that we are the chief of sinners. We're going to say things like, at least I'm not like him or her, or at least I'm not that bad, or hey, I I didn't kill someone, 
Right? So when we focus outwardly, then we minimize the need, our need, for repentance. Right? We're focusing on other people. So this is what Jesus says. He, he flips it on them. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You will all die. And not just die a physical death, as we know, that we all will. It's 100% of people who drink water and breathe air do die. But he's speaking of a spiritual death. See, he answers, Jesus is answering these two rhetorical questions in these verses with the exact same words. So I think it's safe to say that repentance is pretty darn important, right? It's of the utmost importance. In fact, Martin Luther famously said that the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. See, this is why Jesus repeats this same statement. But what, what is repentance? If we can ask a question, I think it's important that we define repentance, right? We have to have a good understanding of what it is because we've gotten this wrong. We've seen it in church history that we've gotten the idea and the very thought and the very definition of repentance incorrect. Now, there have been so many different definitions written, many things stated about repentance, what it is, what it is not. So it's important, again, for us to know what it truly means. Now, all of our historic creeds and all of our historic confessions speak on repentance or repentance unto life. So, <clears throat> we see that from church history. It's important. So, in question 12 of, of the Anglican Catechism, which is the Anglican Catechism the, that our denomination has put out, the ACNA, it states that repentance means to re- this. To repent means that I have a change of heart, turning from sinfully serving myself, to serving God as I follow Jesus Christ. I need God's help to make this change. And that's, that's the answer. That's the definition. That's the answer of the question that it asks about repentance. Now, I believe the last statement of, of that is vital to the whole doctrine of repentance. I need God's help to make this change. This change of heart, this turning from our sin does not happen apart from the grace of God. In Romans 2.4, we, we read that. Right? Paul acknowledges to us that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. Thank God for that, right? Thank God for, uh, for His kindness and His graciousness right? in forgiving us and, and, and giving us the gift of repentance. Because without of it, none of us may expect pardon. But see, Jesus wanted to catch something here. He wanted these people to catch something, and I think He wanted us to see this as well. In his encounter with this crowd, he turns their question around on them. He interprets their intent, asks them a question, and then answers them, saying, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. The reason for this teaching is to get us to look at ourselves, to get us to focus on our need for repentance. Again, when we focus on others, we minimize what the Bible teaches regarding the depravity of humanity. And as a result of the fall recorded in Genesis 3, Genesis 3, excuse me, all of humanity is now under the curse of the first Adam and is in desperate need of salvation. The entirety of humanity. Paul, Paul says this in Romans 3, 23. He makes a good claim for the depravity of humanity in 1, 2, and 3. But this very, um, this very line really sums up the whole entirety of Paul's idea in those first three chapters. He says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. And none of us are exempt from this truth. And so, Michael Wilcock, he, he writes this. He says, the fact that, um, he said, the fact is that we are all sinners, all in need of repentance, all deserving of punishment, and all preserved from the wrath of God, at least until Judgment Day, purely by His mercy. So it's by His mercy that we are preserved, which is what we see here in, um, in, in the barren fig tree, right? See, outward focus, it doesn't produce fruit in us. It doesn't produce fruit unto repentance. So to reinforce this, very thought, this very claim that Jesus is saying about the need for repentance and the fruit the repentance brings, he tells this parable. Let's read here. And he told this parable, a man had planted a fig tree in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit of this tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? He answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, a few of us in here today have probably planted something one time or another, right? Maybe a tree, maybe some flowers, maybe some sort of produce. Or just a simple herb garden that the deers have ransacked. <laughs> Much like our garden. Gonna put up a little fence or those deers will eat it. Deer, deers, deer, deers. Perfect. That's recorded too, by the way. <laughs> now, if you've done this, if you've planted anything, then you know that it is quite some work, right? It's hard work. At least it was for me. So you have to prepare the area in which you're gonna plant. Right? You've got to remove grass, you've got to till the soil, then I don't know, probably something else, I don't know. Then you drop the seed, you cover it, and you apply water, right? and whatever else to make it grow, such as miracle Grow, a.k.a. steroids for your plants. And then you wait, and you wait, <laughs> and you wait some more, <laughs> and you wait some more. You, probably in that time, you've mowed your grass 400 times and the plants still haven't sprouted. <laughs> Needless to say, it's a long process from uh, growing from seed to its final stage, right? It's a very long process. In fact, I think of the, the large oak trees that are in front of uh, my house and are in our neighborhood, and, and I'm amazed at the height at each one of these. And, and yet, they, they came from such a small seed, from an acorn. And they had the proper amount of water and the proper amount of sunlight, oxygen, to grow into what they are today. And if you've been to my house, you've seen how large the oak trees are in that area. They're huge. Scary huge, in fact. <laughs> now, if you plant oak, if you plant, excuse me, fruit, tr- fruit trees for the sake of reaping a harvest of fruit to sell at a local market, then you know this is very important that these fruit trees get all of the attentions th- that they need. So you have to prune them, and remove the dead branches. You have to make sure the soil is just right. You have to make sure it's getting the proper amount of water. And see, all of these are things that are essential to the growth of trees, fruit trees, and anything that we plant for that matter. Now the same can be said for the person who is following Christ. In order for us to grow and to mature and to produce fruit, 
we must first abide in Christ, as John 15.5 states. And surely, then, it is expected of us to bear good fruit because we have all of the necessary items to bear good fruit. We have heard the Gospel. We've read Scriptures. We've received the Holy Spirit who's working in us to produce fruit. We're connected to Christ, who is the true and living vine. These are all the things that are essential for Christ's followers to bear good fruit. On the flip side of this, if we're not bearing good fruit, then we are doing what it, this parable says that we're doing. We are using up the ground and we are taking up space. If we're not bearing fruit, then we should be cut down. According to this parable, what, it's, what, what Jesus is saying here. So we need to ask ourselves, I need to ask myself, am, am I bearing the good fruit of spiritual growth? Am, am I as fruitful as I ought to be? See, this should serve as a warning of impending judgment if we're not making it our endeavor to repent of our particular sins, particularly, then there will be a time when we are removed from the vineyard and the end of that is not a pretty sight. But, but thank God, though, right, that we have an advocate, an intercessor who comes to our aid. To the vine dresser, he replies back to the man. He replies back and he says, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it, and put on manure. He wants to cultivate it. He wants to ensure that it grows and that it produces fruit. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is how gracious our God is, is that He he gives us time. He's kind in repentance. He's slow. He's merciful. We see that through all, all of Scripture. But again, time may run out. See, Matthew Henry said, had it not been for Christ's intercession, the whole world would have been cut down. God in His own great mercy is patient and kind. And it is this kindness that does grant to us repentance. Again, but there will be a time when the unfruitful will be cut off. And may we never be among those that are unfruitful branches. And that is my prayer today, is that none of us will be unfruitful branches, that we will see one another and rejoice in heaven with one another. So again, I ask, what is Jesus doing to cultivate spiritual fruit in your life? What is He doing to cultivate spiritual fruit in my life? Perhaps He's using these difficult experiences to bring us to repentance. We see if earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes that are happening? Are we looking at ourselves when we see these disasters and these tragedies happen? And rather than asking questions, well, I wonder what they did to deserve this, flip it around on ourselves. Pray that that helps us to see repentance, to see repentance in our own hearts. And if we are unrepentant in an area, that we would graciously call out to the Lord and ask Him, for repentance, to grant us repentance and forgiveness of those sins. Certainly, Jesus is using His Word to fertilize our souls. But how are we responding? How are we responding to His gracious work for our salvation? I think the best way to re- respond is to repent, believe, and bear good fruit.
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do thank You for uh, giving us the gift of repentance. Or the very idea that, um, that we are in need of repentance should... Uh, it does bring a damper to our souls, but we should be thankful, God, that You give it to us and that You grant it to us in Your goodness and Your kindness. And we're thankful for that, Lord. I pray, God, that as the Gospel message went forward, Lord, that You um, have opened up those ears and hearts to receive that message, Lord. And we just thank You for all of these things. In Jesus' name, Amen.